you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, please turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. This morning we will be looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, focusing on verses 19 through 21. You can also find this passage on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's message. Two weeks ago, when we looked at the previous passage, verses 12 to 18, we began to hear uh, Peter uh, give a rationale, if you will, as to why we can trust the message of the Bible. He says very clearly, it's not a cleverly devised myth. It is not a story from the Jewish people to make them look heroic or great or wise. Rather, it is the very word of God. Peter emphasizes this. He points to the historical event of the transfiguration. He is an eyewitness of that event. He wants the church to understand through this rationale the importance of listening to the message of God and obeying the word of God. This church, remember, he's preaching to um, churches in Asia Minor uh, that have been dispersed because of persecution or facing hardship and trials. And so they know what it means to um, suffer. They know what it means to go through difficulty. But the answer to that is to trust and believe in God and to do so through his written word. And in our passage today, which really is a continuation of that argument, you can almost make the case that 12 to 21 is one argument. Um, Peter is going to further boost our understanding and appreciation of Scripture I love this illustration here. He calls it a lamp shining in a dark place. That conjures or should conjure the the imagery of warmth and safety and security, um, of, of hope. That's how God's word should be to us, isn't it? Would you please follow along with me as we read that very word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. For the sake of context, I would like to begin at verse 12 and then read through verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain in today's passage. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. He has promised it will accomplish everything that he has set out for it to do. 
Would you please go with me to the Lord in prayer and ask that he do that here and now. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if you do not tend the seed, if you do not provide the waters from heaven, the sun to shine upon it, protection from the elements, the flower will not grow. Lord, if you do not work in our hearts, plant it in soft soil, protect us from opposition, if you do not nourish us with the power of the Holy Spirit, we will not grow. And so we plea with you, O Lord, send forth your Spirit. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts this day. Help us to have a greater sense of trust and love for you and for your word. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. One of my greatest passions in this life is reading, which I'm sure surprises absolutely none of you. I love how you can take a book and you can learn something that somebody else has spent life learning and doing. You can listen to an expert tell you about whatever it may be. I love fantasy and I, I try to um, intersperse my, my reading schedule with fiction and nonfiction. I love how you can be transported off to a, a mystical place, a strange new world with strange new rules. I've had this joy all of my life, but uh, there was a moment in seminary that uh, my, my boat was rocked, if you will. It was in a class titled Church History 3 with Dr. Sean Lucas, and he was making the point for us, and he's a history professor, so he's referring to history. He said, now, gentlemen, the most important thing you need to do when you read a book, and I'm thinking, I know the answer, you read it. No, the most important answer or thing you have to do when you read a book is look up the author, look up their background, and find their biases and their intentions before you read their material. And then you can read into what they're telling you. This crushed me. I, I was, was blissfully ignorant. I thought you read a book, and if they wrote a book, they're authoritative, and you just listen to what they say, and life's good. Um, but... Uh, Critical scholarship, good critical scholarship, says that every author has a purpose, an intent, a goal in mind. And so you need to know that to better understand what they're saying and to catch certain weaknesses in their writing. This is necessary in our world today, and we should do this with everything we write or we read. But I would argue that it's not necessary of the Word of God. I would argue that we don't have to engage in critical scholarship. Now, Please don't misunderstand me. If you engage in critical scholarship with the Word of God, you will come to the same conclusion. It can be trusted, it is true, and it can be backed up by evidence. But when you do critical scholarship, when you look into um, the authority of a text, you're really asking about the authority of the one who writes it. And what Peter is saying in our passage today is the one who wrote the book is God himself. And there's no more authoritative source that we can go to than him. And so it can be fully trusted because he has a perfect track record. We're going to see really three different ways that um, this comes to light in our passage. One, quite plainly, God's word can be trusted. We see this in verse 19. Secondly, the Bible is God-breathed truth. We'll see this in verse 20. 
And then finally, taking the passage as a whole, Peter's going to make the case that God's word has the power and the ability to change lives, to completely and radically change lives. And so each of these is, is something that we will see in our text today. And it should bring you comfort and hope. You, you should walk away from this with a greater appreciation for the word of God. Let us begin by seeing how God's word can be trusted. And we walk back in the, in the text I read right before our passage to the transfiguration event. This is um, evidence that Peter uses to give certainty. This was real. This happened. This took place. I'm not making this up. I was an eyewitness to it. There's other eyewitnesses. You can go talk to them. And then in our passage in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Who's the we here? The we is the church. We, the church, have the prophetic word. That's a, a way of saying the scriptures more fully confirmed. Now, how do we have the scriptures more fully confirmed? The answer is in Christ. If you were with us last Sunday when Randon preached for us, you will remember that Jesus on the Emmaus Road taught about himself where? From the Old Testament scriptures. He revealed to the disciples who he was and what he came to do from the Old Testament text. The Old Testament is one big story pointing forward to Jesus. And since we're a part of of the post-resurrection history, our part in the story comes after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a better or clearer understanding of what had to take place. In the Old Testament, people were saved by faith, looking forward to the Savior to come. They, in hope and in trust of God, said, you will provide. You are going to do what you've said. We, as... <laughs> Excuse me. We as New Testament Christians look back, or post-New Testament Christians, look back and trust in God by faith at what God has done. And we look to Christ and say, you did do what you say you were going to do. So Old Testament looks forward to a promise not yet revealed. The New Testament looks backwards to what has taken place. And we continue on this side of things to look back and say, thank you, Lord. So we have it more fully revealed to us because we have seen it take place. And so Peter, what he's really doing here is he's making the case for the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, that's a, a big word uh, that basically says the Bible can be trusted and it is sufficient or effective in what it promises and what it teaches. You can trust God's word because God says what he's going to do, he does it, and we have record of it. We have reliable eyewitnesses telling of supernatural events and fulfillment of specific prophecies where the writers claim that it was divine rather than human in origin. It was written on three continents over several thousand years in three languages, and yet it does not contradict itself once. We can trust the word of God. This is the foundation of our faith. And, and Peter really wants the people to wrestle with this. He, he, remember, he's dying. He, he's on his final few years of life. He knows his end is coming. 
and he wants to leave them with something they can trust. And he's saying, take this word and trust it. Apply it to your lives. In fact, he, he, he says it here. You will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. He calls us to pay attention to the word of God. We should read it and study it and apply it to our lives because it's a lamp shining in the darkness. It clarifies what is hidden and helps us better see the path ahead. I have played an, an embarrassing amount of video games, board games, and computer games across my short lifetime. And I can tell you something with almost absolute certainty. It does not matter how powerful you are. It does not matter how great you are or big you are or what super magical mystical weapon you have. If you cannot see, you cannot fight. Period. If you cannot see, you are rendered useless. And your super magical whatever is rendered useless. Let me make a real life example. Um, most people, if they're honest, will tell you they have a fear of the dark. Now, maybe um, you're wise enough to say, I'm not really afraid of the dark. But what most people would say is, I'm afraid of what may be in the dark. It's not the darkness that, that scares us. It's not knowing what might be there. There's an uncertainty. Excuse me. There's a, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's around this corner. I cannot see ahead, therefore I cannot plan ahead. I cannot prepare. I cannot get myself ready for this unknown. Well, what Peter is saying here and what God's word does is it gets rid of that. When you turn on the light, whether it's a lamp or a flashlight or a candle, whatever it may be, when, when light is introduced, darkness flees. Then all of a sudden, that super creepy room that you don't want to go in because there may be monsters in there and scary things, it just comes to find out it's your messy basement. That's not a monster, that's a mop. That, that's not a, a, a scary thing, that's a box. All of a sudden, that which is unknown and uncertain becomes known and certain, identifiable. God's word works the same way. In our lives, what do we do? How do we act? How do we treat others? How do we respond in this situation? How do I live in faith to a God who loves me? We read God's word and then we apply it. It tells us how to live. It tells us how to act. It tells us how to treat one another. It, it, it tells us how to be better parents. It tells us how to be better spouses. It, it tells us how to be better children. It, it, it tells us how to interact in our workplace. God's word shines a light on this world, a light on our hearts, a light on our reality. And all of a sudden we can see. Now, sometimes we don't like what we can see because we're ugly and we're sinful. But that's the beauty of God's word, too. It, it bears it all. And then we go to God. God, help me. Lord, I've illumined things in my life that I don't like. Well, that's the beauty of God's word. And how long does it shine? How long does this last? Is this a temporary thing? Um, you know, the, this morning when we uh, got ready to start the service, thankfully we realized there were no batteries in my mic pack. Um, and we use rechargeables. That's like a constant discussion on Lord's Day mornings. Are the batteries good? Are you good to go? Uh, because there's a, there's a window. There's a finiteness to these batteries. And sometimes they go out. You, you hear it sometimes. 
Is that, with, is that how it is with God's word? Do we have a, a window? You've got 72 hours with God's word and then it's no longer effective. No. No, Peter says that God's word will be a light into the darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is a beautiful poetic way of saying until Jesus Christ comes back. That's how long this will work. How long is God's word going to benefit me and bless me and strengthen me and encourage me and help me until Jesus himself comes back? And why does it stop then? And in some ways it doesn't. But you won't need to read it because you can hear it. He will be with you. You can listen to him and get God's word directly. And so God's word is effective in our lives. It can be trusted. And it does offer us hope and help. And it does so, again, we ask ourselves, what is the authority behind that? What is the reason that we can trust that? Why can we apply it to our lives as you're saying it is? It's because it's from God. We see that in our second verse. And we mentioned this two weeks ago, um, but it bears repeating again. The Bible in and of itself is not trustworthy because it is old. Don't take it as this is, this is old, it must be smart or it must be wise. Uh, there's a lot of foolish things that are old. The Bible in and of itself is not trustworthy because I tell you it's trustworthy. Because here's the secret. I'm not trustworthy. <laughs> I am prone to fault and failure. The Bible is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. The Bible is a collection of his divine word to mankind. And you can trust what I say so long as it matches with what God says. You have to be to 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 sift through and weigh these words. And that's my prayer for you each week that you would Sift these words through your understanding of Scripture. God can be trusted. Remember back to the story I, I told you earlier about um, fact-checking the sources before reading a book? If you do this with God, if you go on this journey, and it can be a fun journey, you quickly come to some conclusions. God keeps his promises. God is faithful. God tells you what he's going to do, and then God does it. He doesn't change his mind. He is consistent in his character and his being. God is love, but God also is just. God is holy, and he calls us to holiness. When the more we examine God, the more consistent we find him. When we look at what God says he will do, we see it come to pass. We see this most clearly in Jesus Christ himself. And we, we, we have just experienced this over the Easter season. And I love this. I find this stat every so often, and I, I like sharing it. I admit I don't know the accuracy of it, um, but one mathematician calculated for Jesus to be who he said he was and to do what he said he would do, he came up with 48 specific prophecies in the Old Testament that would have to come to pass. Now, there's a big debate on that, and, and some people say it's a lot more than that. But this mathematician said, that's too complicated. Let's take eight. He said, what would mathematically the, the, the chance that eight of the prophecies, the clear prophecies we can read from the Old Testament, what would it take for those eight to come true for Jesus to be exactly the person that matches all eight of those? And the number this mathematician came up with was 10 to the 17th power. Or, to put it differently, if it's been a while since you've um, 
dealt with exponents. Um, this would be just as much of a chance as marking one silver dollar, then randomly placing it in a stack two feet high that entirely covered the surface of the state of Texas, blindfolding someone and telling them, pick it out. That's the likelihood that eight of the specific prophecies about Jesus Christ would come true in one man. But it's not eight. It's most likely not 48. We would look at that and go, wow, that's one long gamble. But God looks at that and says, I can do it. With absolute precision and accuracy. Laying everything out according to his will and his divine plan. This is God's word. And what God says comes to pass. And I tell you this for the same reason that Peter does. First of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the heading of this section, I, I titled it, God Breathed Truth. We get that um, uh, terminology, uh, panuma, from, from spirit. Um, most famously, this comes from 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is breathed out or God-inspired and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible does not come from man. It is not man-made. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God ordained the writers to write his message to his people. Because they were writing under the authority and guidance of the Holy Spirit, even though there's unique styles and uh, linguistic choices that uh, come through, it's done so perfectly without fault or error. It's so much so that it can be called God-breathed. It's as if God spoke it himself. And this is vital for us today. We all know how easy it is to make a grammatical uh, mistake. We know what it's like to um, say the wrong thing when we're not being careful. Earlier in my sermon, uh, my autocorrect turned the, the phrase a magical place when I was referring to reading uh, to a musical place. I don't read musicals. I have a hard time watching musicals. Um, but that was one that I caught and I, I couldn't help but laugh. Um, because I, I wrote a real word, but it wasn't right. It was grammatically correct, but it was not technically correct. We are faulty beings. We are capable of error. We are capable of mistake. But that does not happen with God. I mean, let's look at Peter himself, the, the author of this book. He has his own character faults. He's often quick to speak. He's often the first one in trouble. He struggled with his identity as a Jewish person and the Gentiles being welcomed into the kingdom of God. Um, he had great witness or weaknesses. He doubted Christ, and the list could go on and on. He, he really is a, a faulty example. But we know through the power of the Holy Spirit, because God ordained it to be so, he wrote First and Second Peter, and they are without fault or error, and therefore can be trusted. And so this man, this faulty, sinful man, becomes the perfect example for you and for me. And for many of us, another reason that we know that this is the word of God is when it was introduced to our lives, when it was brought in, when we really started to grasp it, it changed everything. So many of you, and I, I take it a joy to, to listen to you and hear your testimony and, and just find out that for a lot of you, God radically changed your heart and your life. 
you were going this direction and the Lord took you the opposite way. It is, it is beautiful and wonderful to hear those stories of how God gets into someone's life and heart and, and completely changes them. There's no reason or rationale for that if it's not God himself. There, there, there's no reason for you to, to make such a shift, to, to hear those stories, to, to think about those things. One of my best friends in seminary was a, was a Chinese doctor. He came to practice medicine and, and to get further education. He was an atheist. He hated God and everything to do with God. And um, a long story short, he ended up in prison here in America. He was converted uh, by the policeman that, uh, that arrested him. He committed his life to Christ. His wife left him. He went to seminary. He got a doctorate. And now he's back working for the underground church. Witnessing to his own people doing more good than he ever did as a doctor. That's what this does. That's the power of God's word. And that's how we know it, it is God's word. Because it changes and it transforms And we see that as we look at this passage as a whole, really, is our third point. Um, God has revealed to us his character in the scriptures. We're told who we are also and what we have waiting for us. If I were to, to ask you how many of us would make different decisions if we knew what the dangers were that were ahead, we knew that those things that would challenge us most in our lives... Well, we have that in Scripture. The book of Proverbs is a beautiful book that teaches us, particularly men, how to pursue wisdom and flee the temptations of this world. Esther. Esther teaches us how boldness for God's truth and God's people can lead to deliverance. Gideon, with all of his faults, shows us that our God is stronger than our weaknesses. Daniel. Daniel demonstrates that what is dangerous to man is nothing to God. We could go... On and on and on and on again, looking at case studies where God's word gives us assurance and confidence and hope that the one who has us, the one who is in control of our lives, can take care of us. This word changes lives. It's a light shining in the darkness. It brings people out of the shadows of sin and the pit of despair. It welcomes them into the light, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the shed blood of the cross, it cleanses us from the inside out. I cannot plea with you strong enough to commit yourself to the teaching of God's Word. It is an absolute travesty that we live in a day and age of such literacy, and yet we are some of the most spiritually ignorant people. You know, it would have been part of the curriculum for rabbis to memorize whole books or portions of the books of the Bible. The Judaizers, the ones that got it so wrong, had a greater passion for understanding and hearing the scriptures than many of us do today. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to beat you down, but how many of us can recite countless facts that, unless we ever get invited to be on a show like Jeopardy, will ultimately lead to absolutely nothing? I'm looking at myself. And yet, at the same time, we, we far too often neglect the very word of God, which has the ability to purify our lives and protect our souls. Peter says here in his poetic way that this word, the word of God, 
is what will preserve you until Christ comes again. You need this book more than you need your next meal. You need this book more than you need that next breath. Only it will sustain you. Only it will get you through times of heartache and pain because it is the words of your Father who loves you, who created you and designed you. He made you for himself to worship him, to love him, to live in a good... Yeah. Forgive me, we're almost there. To live in a community with fellow believers, to love one another, to support one another in Christ. That God that loves you that much has given you his word, his truth. Peter's writing to struggling Christians. He's writing to people who know well what it's like to sacrifice for the sake of Christ. For some of them, the day of the Lord would have been soon indeed, for they wouldn't face the next month, the next week. Death was an ever-present reality for them. But whether they died that year or lived to a ripe old age, Peter was making the case for the sufficiency of the Word of God, the beauty of what it teaches, and the blessing it offers for a changed life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is for you today as well. A changed life through the power of Jesus Christ, taking Him by faith, trusting in His Word, and seeking to obey all that it commands. Let us pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for answered prayer. We've prayed several times this morning for strength for me. We've made it through the sermon. You have offered me strength. And that may seem small or trite, Lord, but may we not take for granted when you answer prayer, when you grant that which we ask. Lord, you are so good to us. You care for us greatly. You provide for our needs. And what we need most is you. And you've given us your word. You've given us who you are and who we are in light of who you are and what we're supposed to do about it. Lord, I pray for everyone here, everyone from the nursery all the way up to those joining us online, that we may trust in you today. We may trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That we may live our lives in light of your word and we might take you by faith. Lord, I thank you for your word, that it can be trusted and applied to our lives. I pray that you would continue to be with us now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.